Father, we come before that throne of grace with a sympathetic high priest. We do desire as your people to be faithful, even though we are often faithless. We do desire to be alive, even though we are often cold and dead. And I just pray that you would warm us and stir our hearts even this evening as we gather together around the proclamation of the gospel and around the essence of what it means to be a Christian and to know that we are in a saving relationship with you. Lord, may you be pleased to bless. Bless tonight in in a unique way that we will know that we've We've been ministered to by your Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that as we come together this night in the middle of the week, all kinds of things going on and tired, may you meet with us this evening, Lord. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to uh, have you all here this evening. I feel like kind of maybe spring fever is set in and afflicting Wednesday night services a little bit. It's so nice outside, and I don't feel so threatened. There's no one on the front row, so I'm gonna I'll stay down here for a while. And I'm not really threatened by people on the front row, but it takes me a while to get used to. Um, I have rec- recently resolved that uh, I really, really wanted to keep my sermons down. I've been discouraged because as I look at the times that I'm going in my preaching, it's, they're going longer and longer. And I, I'm of the conviction that if I can't say what needs to be said in about 45 minutes, then I'm taking too long to get to the point. And I just believe that good preaching doesn't necessarily have to be extremely long preaching. And um, so as I look at this, I'd resolve, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going to we're going to be more focused and we're going to we're going to lay it. And then here it goes tonight, and I'm going to break my resolution. So I'm, I don't expect to be really, really long, but um, there's some, I'm going to do something I hadn't planned to do until this afternoon, and uh, Jeremy's going to accommodate me here. I'm going to show a, a brief, it's four minutes, and I'm figuring I can easily hopefully come up with four minutes to extract from my, from my notes. But uh, I won't, I'm going to show you a video, a brief video, four minutes, um, and it really has a lot to do with the message from Easter, which is a message on the resurrection and ultimately a message on the gospel. And uh, I know when I preach, I often get real excited and I mumble my, jumble my words and say things. I probably have funny expressions. But the reason I do that, and it's, it's, it's usually not that I contrive it, like get excited here. It just becomes something beating very deeply within me and I can't always and my mind is going faster than my mouth and it's because it's very important to me and sometimes I feel like man maybe maybe there's brothers and sisters here that just don't understand how important this is and I spoke about the gospel the presentation of the gospel and how important it is that we preach the apostolic gospel What I want to do is show you why Easter's message is so important and why I get excited and spit and and spray. It's because of what you're going to see here. This is a brief video. This is a quote-unquote gospel presentation to children. Unfortunately, it's not unique. It's standard fare 
that our children and perhaps many of you have grown up on. And it answers the question, why is the church so anemic in the world today? So, Jeremy, if you go ahead and show that, I'm going to keep my comments brief afterwards, and then we will cover the Doctrine of Assurance. Scott, can I get you to click at least those lights off there? So I want to talk to you about you and Jesus. He's our very best friend. Can you say that, Jesus? Say it again, Jesus, Jesus. can be my, can be my very, best friend. very best friend. We're singing about a very powerful, awesome God today. We're telling God that he's a super strong God. We're telling him you created everything. And you know what? He did create everything. And he also created you. Point to you and say he created me. Do you know why he created you? Have a listen. Have a listen. You know the reason he created you? He created you because he wanted to be your friend. And just like you have a friendship with your friends at school and you have a relationship with your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters, well, Jesus wants to have a relationship. He wants to have a friendship with you. So today, what I want to ask you, What is the single most important question that anyone will ever ask you? And it's this. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? When Jesus becomes your best friend, listen to what he does. Listen to what Jesus does for us. He forgives us of all the things that we've ever done wrong. Everybody say all the things. He forgives us of all the things we've ever done wrong. And then he gives us a brand new start and a hope for a fantastic, everyone say fantastic, future. So today I want everyone listening, I'm going to ask you a question. Is Jesus my best friend? So I want everyone to close your eyes right now. Have I got a relationship with Jesus? Do I talk to him? Do I read his word? Because today, if you've not done that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to say, Jesus, be my best friend. And I want to be a Christian. And I want to live for you all the days of my life. And one day, I'm going to meet you in heaven. And if that's you, and you want to give your life to Jesus, you want to open your heart and say, Jesus, come into my heart. I want you to put up your hand. Everyone close your eyes so nobody sees what anyone else is doing. If that's you, I want you to put your hand up nice and tall. Wow, that's fantastic. Isn't that fantastic, guys? Have a look at all their hands. For the rest of you, and for those with your hands raised, I want you to pray this prayer after me. Say, Jesus, today I ask you to forgive me of all the things I've done wrong. Today, I want your forgiveness and I make a big decision to become a Christian. Someone who loves Jesus and someone who says, Jesus, be my best friend. 
Jesus a big clap. Wonderful. Praise God. I don't know how many kids were there. Maybe 600. How many raised their hands and became a Christian? And you realize they became a Christian and the gospel was never even preached. There was nothing about the death of Jesus Christ. There was nothing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was nothing about a future judgment. Everything was framed in this special Jesus. He just wants to be your best friend. And what's so sad about that, because we're we're talking about the subject of assurance, 500 children will leave that meeting being told they're a Christian. You're a Christian. Many of them say, don't let anybody ever tell you you're not a Christian. No repentance. No sin. Conviction of sin. No death of Christ. And no resurrection. And without the death and resurrection of Christ, there's no gospel. And if there's no gospel, there's no salvation. And if there's no salvation, there's no Christians. And yet we have a generation of people being raised in that kind of pseudo-Christianity. And we wonder why our churches are so anemic. That's not a unique, that's not the worst of the worst. I've seen worse. You would show that in many churches today, and they would see no problem with that whatsoever. Look at all those kids. They just made Jesus their best friend. Well, we're talking about the subject of assurance. And listen, I, was, I want to say, I understand that there is a need to present the gospel age appropriately. But you, that doesn't mean you change the gospel. It doesn't mean you gut the gospel. Children understand a great deal, a great deal. And we need to present gospel truths to their level. And perhaps they would come under conviction of sin. And perhaps they would place their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to continue on the subject of assurance. Um, That video, though, I think highlights why. Sunday's message and these messages on assurance are so vitally important. Last week on assurance, we we spoke about the very beneficial role of doubt. And I hope those children in that video will come to a place of doubt, to doubt this conversion experience. We're going to talk about assurance. I've been using this book somewhat as a guide. How can I be sure I'm a Christian? Um, If you're following along with me in that book, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curve tonight because I'm going to change up the order a little bit. I believe when we talk about the subject of assurance, there are two vital elements as we consider The basis of our assurance. How can I be sure I'm a Christian? There are two vital elements. They they are distinct, but they are two aspects of a whole. You really can't have one without the other. And the only reason I'm dividing them up is because of time. 
and because of sermonic material. So I'm going to divide them up tonight, but they really make up two different parts of a whole. And I want you to think in terms of a coin or a dollar bill. Every coin or dollar bill has a front, usually the picture of some prominent American. And then behind the coin or behind the dollar bill, you have some symbol of the United States government. Prominent American on the front, and then what backs up the, this currency? Well, the government backs it up, which is kind of a scary prospect today, isn't it? But it's the government's credit and worthiness that stands behind our dollar bills. So you have two sides, but it's one whole. And we're going to be looking at assurance starting tonight. We're going to look at the front side, if you will. Next week, we're going to look at the back side. But they're not really two different things. They make up one whole. The front side is what we could say our face, our life. You could say it's what represents perhaps inside of us. Um, You could say in one sense that the front is going to be a little bit subjective, but it's an important part of the assurance process. On the back side, it's something totally outside of us. It's something that stands behind our assurance, namely God himself, the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit, and it's very objective. I believe both of these elements are very important in the matter of assurance. Looking at ourselves and looking at what Christ has done, what stands behind it. Now, Don Whitney in his book, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? He begins basically by looking at the backside of the coin or the backside of assurance. What stands behind our assurance, namely the character of God, the word of God and the work of Jesus Christ. That is the basis of our assurance. But on the front side is the more subjective side. It's our experience. It's our activity, if you will. Now, the reason I'm not going to start with the back like Don Whitney does, I'm going to look at the front at us first is because basically that's what I see the apostles doing. The apostles set Paul, second Corinthians, chapter 13, verse five. Paul says this. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. So in this this currency, this currency of assurance, Paul doesn't say you need to really examine, make sure God's true to his word. And you need to, you know, is the work of Christ really sufficient? He looks at the face of it. And he says, you need to examine yourself and see if you are in the faith. The word examine is perazzo. It means to try, to make a trial of, to put to test. Examine yourself means put yourself on the witness stand. Put yourself up to be examined. Then he says, test yourself. That word is dokimadzo. You could say cross-examine yourself. Let yourself be cross-examined. Am I really in the faith? John Piper spoke of the painful requirement of self-examination as a part of the assurance process. And that's what I'm going to be speaking about tonight. One of the reasons that I'm starting with the front, I'm starting with 
the us side of the equation of, of our assurance. Again, not only because Paul said, examine yourself, but the backside represents belief, represents what God has done. And the Apostle James tells us it's real easy to say you believe. Now, I believe that. Now, I believe the Bible. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. It's real easy to say you believe. But James says faith without activity, faith without work, it's dead. It's worthless. It's vain. And so we're going to examine the subjective side. And I'm going to try to highlight some of the subjectiveness to this examination. The subjective side of our assurance by examining ourselves. I've entitled the message tonight, Assurance, Signs of Life. Signs of Life. I have one statement here that it's partly from Piper, partly from Whitney, and it's partly from MacArthur. So it's not at all mine, but it's a bunch of different people saying this. But it's a really good point. Assurance is partially sustained by objective evidences of Christian living. Assurance is partially sustained. It means that's really bringing out the two sides of the coin. This is just one part of our assurance. It is partially sustained by objective evidences of Christian living. Signs of life. In the physical world, it's really not difficult to ascertain if someone is dead or living. You, you don't have to be a doctor. It, it's, it's pretty obvious if someone is dead. And it's pretty obvious if somebody's alive. In the physical body, the presence of life is self-evident. And I'm going to suggest to you tonight that in the spiritual world and in spiritual life, spiritual life will be self-evident. You don't have to be a great theologian or scholar or pastor or in the ministry to set yourself on the examination chair and cross-examine yourself and say, is there life in me? There must be signs of life. Spiritual life, if you're a Christian. And they're very important. We're going to delineate some of the signs of this life that is in a Christian. But I want to be careful when I delineate some of these things. It doesn't mean, well, okay, if I do these things, then I will be a Christian. No. No more than, now if I make my heart beat, I'll be alive. No. My heart beats because I am alive. And these signs of life are things that happen because you are alive spiritually. You can't do these things and make yourself come alive. But they are part of the life that is within you. This assumption that Paul has in examining ourselves has to be that if a person is truly saved, we will be Alive spiritually. There will be proofs. And that life will have 
characteristics, characteristics that we can see and say, oh, yes, I am in the faith or maybe I'm not in the faith. This is important because the Bible makes it very clear that not one of us in this room was born a Christian. None of us. No one was born right with God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were born dead in our trespasses and sin. We are alienated from the life of God. We are children of wrath. That's how we are born. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but Ephesians 2, 5, but God made us alive. Alive. That's what we're focusing on. What are the signs of being made alive by God? There was a 17th century Puritan. His name was Henry Scougal. He wrote a little booklet about what is true religion. And he summarizes it. It's a priceless summary. True religion is simply the life of God in the soul of man. And that's the life that I want us to examine. The life of God in the soul of man. True religion is not adhering to some external rituals. True religion is not ceremonies and creeds. True religion is the life of God from within. So simply, as we look at Scripture, the question that will be before each one of us, myself included, is, is there evidence of life, God's life, spiritual life. Is there evidence of life within us? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 1 John because we're going to keep most of our remarks from 1 John. And it's fitting that we speak from 1 John because the author, John, the author, is writing so that we may know that we have eternal life. 1 John chapter 5. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Verse 11, I'm sorry. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have Life. Whoever has the Son has life. There are probably anywhere from three explicit signs in John's letter to up to ten different attitudes, just depending on how you qualify and categorize it, where John pinpoints certain signs and characteristics of this life. And we're going to look briefly at four of them. I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. We'll just start from the beginning and move through this. Sometimes these 
signs may seem so altruistic, so, well, of course, but don't let your familiarity with these signs rob you. First of all, if this reality is in you, then this is cause for assurance. This is cause for rejoicing. And don't be so dumb of hearing that you hear these and you you just assume that they're a part of you when they may very well not be a part of you. 1 John chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, here's the phrase I want you to see. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is a quite amazing statement. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, you could say a hundred different things. What what were you going to say? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will feel like we're on a mountaintop. We will, you know, and you could just go on and on the things you could say to that. But he says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship one with another. We have fellowship. So, For me, the first characteristic of the life within us, it will be a what I'm going to call a spiritual connection with other believers. If you have this life in you, there will be a spiritual connection with other believers. We will have fellowship. That's the real well-known word, koinonia, fellowship. I'm calling it a connection. It's something in common. It's something that we share. We have fellowship with one another, with believers. When their life of God is present in people, they have a bond. They have a unity. They have a connection. I believe this is one of the most significant evidences that you find in the letter of John. He will stress and talk about this love of the brethren, this desire to be with Christians. And he speaks of it as a fellowship, as a connection of having something together. Let me say this. If a person is not connected to the body of Christ, the church, there is very, very little grounds for assurance. We could probably walk up and down this street and the streets and the neighborhoods knocking on doors. And Are you a Christian? Are you going to go to heaven? And, and probably a statistics hold vast numbers. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. And none of them, most of them probably don't even go to a church. That's not uncommon at all. I'm a Christian, of course. Yeah, but I don't really go to church. If a person is not connected to the body of Christ, there is very, very little grounds for assurance. Now here, going to church doesn't make anybody a Christian. But not going to church 
almost makes certain you're not a Christian. That's just the, and it's, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what, okay, what does this mean, going to church? Because that's not what he uses. He talks about fellowship. But just in, in the broad sense here, there is a desire to want to be together with other Christians. The life of God and the soul of man connects him with other believers. We will be spiritually connected. We'll have things in common. Just before the service, Gary and I were talking. I like to talk about motorcycles. Now, I meet somebody that's on a bike or I look at, and I talk. I have something. We have something in common. What is it that believers have in common? It's the things of God. That's what we share in common. The experiences of the Holy Spirit, the the relationship with Jesus Christ, the truth of his word. Our fellowship is centered around the things of God. It is a deep and living connection that cuts across all social cultural barriers. When you look at just in our church here, there are so many economic, social, and cultural differences and distinctions. There's some of you that are pretty well-to-do. There's others of you that aren't so well-to-do. We have black and white and Chinese. And you think about all the different things. What is it that is our unity? What is our fellowship? It's the things of God. It's spiritual things where we come together and we have experiences with the triune God together. And that is what we fellowship around. That's what we talk about. This fellowship ultimately has to be about verbalization. It's it's about what we talk about. If I meet somebody on the road and he has a motorcycle, well, guess what we're going to talk about? We're not going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about motorcycles. Because that's what we have in common. When believers gather together, guess what they talk about? They're supposed to talk about the things of God. Their relationship with the Lord. The truth of God's word. That is a sign of spiritual life when a person shares a spiritual connection with other believers and they share an interest and experience in the things of God. That's, it's so important for us as a church that when we come together, whether it be Sunday morning, shepherding group meetings, you know, coffees, team fellowships, when we come together, we could have fellowship. You could have fellowship around sports. You could have fellowship around politics. You could have fellowship around bashing the government. You could have all kinds of sources of fellowship, things in common. But that doesn't have anything to do with being a Christian. When believers get together, what they have in common is the things of God. And that's what we talk about. That's what we share with one another, because that is our bond. That's our unity. So that our interests and our conversations are in the things of God. Howard Eames, he's I don't know if he coined this phrase, but theologue. Just get together and talk about God, talk about theology and debate. I love to see guys get together. Bobby and a group of us, we went up to Nebraska to see D.A. Carson, and we're driving, in the, and we got into all kinds of debates, and not about politics, but about the Bible. 
We just feel, we're just discussing these things because believers love to do that. Now, don't think, well, I don't know all this grand theology. You don't have to be a scholar. It's not about knowing all the intricacies of the Christian religion and theology. That's not necessarily what it's about. Many times this, this conversation and this intimacy will be about struggles in the Christian life. You, you'll have prayer requests as you're praying for a, a spouse, as you lament your own coldness. There could be all kinds of things, but the point is the connection, the intimacy is around the things of God, is around spiritual things. Non-Christians aren't like this. Non-Christians do not have this intimacy. I've talked to some of you. You've, you've been in church gatherings, and, and I've heard many of you say that it was your assessment that most of these people in the church probably weren't born again. And one of the ways that you've discerned is because they'd never talked about the things of God. And they talk about the weather. You talk about sports. You talk about, oh, yeah, we've got to do a Bible study. Well, whatever. And, but there's no interest in the things of God. Non-believers are not interested in the things of God. They're not interested in talking like that and about those things. For the unbeliever, faith is a very private matter, isn't it? What, in, what's etiquette in public? You don't talk about religion and politics and sex. That's a private matter. I, you know, I don't, I don't discuss my faith with other people. I'm not a child of God. As believers, we want to talk about the Lord. And so often when we talk about other things, whether it's politics or economy, so often it's how it relates to the things of God. Because that is our bond. That's our connection. Again, so we put yourself on trial. Do I have an interest in that? Do I want to get together with God's people? Do I enjoy the fellowship of the church? Am I participating in the fellowship of the church? Am I contributing? Do I share an interest in these spiritual things? Or do I feel like I'm just out of place? I, you know, I don't, they're talking about all these things. I don't know what. Then you have reason to examine yourself. You may have reason to say, I don't know if I'm in the faith or not. And this is subjective. People that will often struggle in this area may be shy people. Oh, I'm so scared to talk. I just, you know, I hear all these people talking, but I just, if I talk, you know, I'll just say something so stupid and and I don't want to say anything. It's not so much that you talk, but do you share the interest in your heart? Are you there in spirit with them and understanding what they're talking about and enjoying that fellowship? And, And conversely, there are those who are very outgoing, the social butterfly. They get in a group and they talk about all the things and people talking about God. Yeah, they'll talk about God. So, again, this is, this is oftentimes subjective, but the truth is clear. True child of God has a spiritual connection with other believers. Is that you? Number two. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1. If we say, verse 8, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. All these verbs here are present tense. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The second sign of life is a conviction of the presence of sin in our lives. 
This is a precious, paradoxical sign of life to me. Because when I naturally think about the life of God being in me, you know what vision I have in my head? A monk saying prayers, or a nun. I'm sorry to use Catholic terminology, but I'm thinking of a very spiritual, austere person. Oh, the life of God must be in them. We read John, this life has a conviction of the presence of sin in our lives. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So to be truthful then, we say we have sin. And to not lie and the truth to be in us is to acknowledge that we are sinful. When the life of God is in the soul of man, there will be an intense exposure to our failures, to our inadequacies. There will be a struggle with sin. It was a unique illustration this morning, but it, it fit. My wife will probably choke me for sharing this, but in our living room, we have a wall, you know, and our house is almost not, not even a year old yet. Or is it a year old? No, it's not a year old. So, you know, it's kind of still new and all freshly painted. And the wall, you come into our living room, you think, wow, that's a very nice room. We haven't seen the sun for a number of days, so this was kind of a new experience for us. But we got up early this morning, and the window in the east, the, sh- the sun was just blazing through. And I looked at that wall, and I went, oh, my God. Do you see all those marks? And look. I mean, it just made that wall look like some kid had just been playing on it. I mean, it was awful. All the imperfections of that wall were immediately lit up. And that is exactly what happens when God indwells a man's life or a woman's life. You can't have a thrice holy God enter into your life and there not be a great discomfort with who you are and the remaining sin that is in you. That's a reality. To, To have that conviction of sin is a very beautiful sign of grace. Because again... Non-Christians aren't like that. Most non-Christians are, I'm not that bad. I'm a decent person. But to have the life of God in you and to convince you beyond a shadow of a doubt of your sinfulness is precious. Whitney has in his book a quote from Richard Baxter, another Puritan. And he's speaking of this awareness of sin. And this is what Richard Baxter said back in like the 1600s. I think... If I could stand and mention all the other marks of grace, that's his term for my term, signs of life. I think if I could stand and mention all the other marks of grace, it would appear that the life and truth of them all lies in this one, the awareness of sin. That's a strong statement. To have this Conscious awareness of a deep-seated sinfulness is a mark of the life of God in the soul of man. Many people who go to church, they get dressed up. Hey, at least the older generation gets 
dressed up. You know, the younger generation, I don't know, they, they don't do so well dressing up Sunday mornings, but I guess in their own ways they dress up. Everybody puts their best face forward. Everybody presents it as they've got it together. We hear a sermon, mediocre, and then we go home. That's probably a fair assessment of a vast number of people and their experience of the Christian life. But there's something radically wrong with that picture. Are you very aware of your sinfulness? Has the, I'm not such a bad person, has it been beaten out of you? That's a sign of life. It's a sign that God is working. Thirdly, in John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, the third sign of life is that a believer cannot practice sin. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There is an intentional obedience to Christ. And that one that is a true believer cannot practice sin. Look just a few verses later in chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawless. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This may seem to contradict what I just said. The conviction of sin in a person's life is a mark of life. And then we have this statement. You don't know him if you keep on sinning. It's not a contradiction. It is a. It is a statement, I believe, on the paradoxical nature of the Christian life. It is an awareness of sin on one hand, but a constant struggle with it on the other hand. You are fighting sin. You're struggling against it. A Christian, a true child of God, cannot remain in sin. He can't sin habitually as a practice. Go on keeping sinning. There's something happens, I believe, that when we are born again, our relationship to sin is changed radically. It's different. Our relationship to sin, it's not removed because we know we have indwelling sin in us. And and John says, if you say you don't have sin, then you're a liar. So we know we have indwelling sin with us. When we're saved, when we're born again, something changes. Our relationship to sin changes. And I believe what changes is not only has the penalty of sin been removed in our life, we're no longer under God's condemnation, the power of sin is broken in our life. We don't have to uh, commit sin. And thirdly, the pleasure of sin is broken in our life. We don't love sin the way we used to. You think about this. I mean, people that are in the world, 
you, you go down to the construction site or the job site. You, you, you get a bunch around a bunch of guys. Womanizing is just part of the game. It's just part of the conquest. That's, you just do that. That's just natural. When you come to know Christ, that's not natural. There is something wrong about that. Unbelievers, drunkenness is the highlight of the weekend. I mean, you live for the weekend so you get drunk or high or stoned. A believer tries doing that, he will be the most miserable creature on the planet because the pleasures of sin are changed for him, broken for him. He doesn't even, and he doesn't, and this is what is so ridiculously maddening. I'm doing these things and I don't even want to do them. Because the relationship to sin has been broken. I've heard guys even say, as believers, they have tried to go out and get drunk, and it's like God has just kept the effects of alcohol from them. It's a stupid thing to try to do, but I'm just telling you, I've heard men give testimony. that They wanted to give themselves over to sin, and it wasn't even anything. Or guys would go out and try to get high, and it was a terrible high. It's just awful. A Christian cannot live in sin. A non-Christian is dead to sin. They justify their sin. They continue in their sin. They rationalize their sin. The non-Christian will tell you, no one has the right to tell me how to live my life. You live how you want to, and I'll live how I want to. But for the Christian, our relationship to sin has changed. A true Christian cannot practice sin. And that's one of the foundations of what we call church discipline or church restoration. If you see your brother sinning, you go and you confront him. You bring it up. And if he repents, you've gained a brother. You've restored him. But if he goes on and on in this sinful relationship and the church reaches out and finally the church puts him out, Jesus says you treat him like a Gentile, like a tax collector. What does that mean? It means you're not part of the the grace community. You're not in the family. You're out. Whether you think you are or not, you're not part because you cannot live in sin and call yourself a Christian. Paul says, and this is an interesting way to say it, speaking about assurance, he says in Ephesians 5, you can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. You can be sure of this. If a man is cohabitating with a woman who is not his wife, that man does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter what he thinks. Paul says, be assured of this. If a person is living in a sinful life, they're not Christians. 1 John 5, verse 18. Paul can't really spell it out any clearer. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. He cannot live in that sin. One of the great assurances that you will have is when you fall into sin and your struggle with sin, number one, the pleasures of that sin are removed. They're taken from you. Two, if you don't repent, you, number one, are miserable, but you experience the chastening hand of God. He's not going to let you live that way. 
And he makes you miserable. And he spanks you. And he takes you to the woodshed. That's a sign of the life of God in you. Lastly tonight, and I'll close quickly. Another sign of life. And don't underestimate this. Another sign of life is a true believer has a genuine concern for the truth. They, they want to know and have the truth. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. We are from God. And the Apostle John is speaking here as an apostle. We, the apostles, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Genuine believers love to hear and know the truth. They have a concern for the truth. You talk about a distinguishing sign for this age. The life that is in the world, the spirit of this age, truth is irrelevant. Truth is personal. Don't, I don't want to hear about your truth. But a child of God, they hunger, they long for to hear the truth, to do the truth, to have the truth, to know the truth. And this just isn't any truth. I mean, there's truth about government, there's truth about politics, but this isn't the truth. It is apostolic truth. Whoever knows God listens to us. That's not me, the preacher. It's not faith community church. Listens to us is the apostles. We are concerned with how the apostles explain Jesus and what the Christian life is all about, which is exactly the description of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to hear the truth from the apostles. When you hear the truth and the life of God is in you, the spirit of truth is in you, there's a hearty amen in your soul. You're like, that's right. Amen. Amen means that's true. That's right. The spirit of truth loves the truth, wants the truth, desires the truth. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, that's one of the pillars of my, my ministry that I don't have to be, and I talked about this Sunday, I don't have to be novel. I don't have to have something new and exciting to, to keep and feed God's people I simply have to speak the truth. And when you speak the truth to God's people, they respond to that because they want to know the truth. The truth is what resonates with them. And they hear other voices like Jesus said in John 10, but they're not interested in it. That's dribble. That's, you know, there's nothing there. That's fluff. I want truth. Don't overestimate or underestimate how important that is. Believers love to do and hear and know the truth. Religious people go to church. Religious people do their thing. Religious people go home. A lot of times they don't want anything to do. You know. <laughs> my neighbor had my wife and I over for supper years ago. I've told this story before, but it's just 
Very religious family. Very, very wonderful family. Fantastic neighbors. Very intrigued with what in the world I do. Of course, I told them I'm a pastor. And he is a, they were Catholic. And he said, well, what's your service like? I told him, well, it's about an hour. Wow, an hour. What do you do during that hour? So what? I preach. You preach? How long do you preach? 45, 50 minutes. And, I mean, he about choked. He's like, oh, 45 minutes? What in the world? And they, you know, they stay. What do you say? How, how can you fill 45 minutes? Who's going to sit through all that? Just oblivious to how that would work. I mean, he had no concept of that whatsoever. He probably thought those poor people are going to starve. No one's going to go to that church. And I, I'm speaking. That, I mean, I really think he's just thinking, I don't I don't get it. Because he doesn't understand the drive that is in the believer to know and hear the truth. They want the truth. And, you know, I, even as a pastor, again, I don't like to be disliked any more than anybody else does. If every person that visited our church stayed, we'd have thousands of people in the church. And we have a lot of visitors. We have a lot of one-time visitors. And I believe speaking the truth is one of the ways that a church stays pure. Because believers are attracted to the truth and unrepentant unbelievers are repelled by the truth. They don't want it. That's not what they're looking for. So one of the ways that we will maintain unity in this body is by preaching the truth. Because as the voice of the shepherd goes out in the truth of the message, his sheep hear his voice and they know it and they follow it. So, on the witness stand, it's subjective, but it's a real test. Is there a connection with other believers in your life? Is there a spiritual connection? Not with sports, not about weather and motorcycles, but is there a genuine spiritual connection with other believers? Is there a conviction of the presence of sin in your life? Is there a, the fact you cannot practice sin? You know it. You're miserable when you sin. You understand what I mean when I say I do the things I don't want to do. Is there genuine concern for the truth? You answer yes to that. You're a believer. You're you're a child of God. There's life. Next week we're going to look, and there's there's others I could have brought up. Next week we're going to look at the backside of the coin, the basis. Because there's going to be times when all of us may look at the front Examine ourselves, and we may not like at all what we see. What do we do then? It's where we have to go to the back. What stands behind this assurance? And that's where we always will go. So next week we'll look at the basis of assurance from God's perspective. Let me briefly close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and I want to pray for all the saints, Lord. All the saints. I want to pray for the saints that are in churches and And they're not hearing truth. And they don't even know now really what truth sounds like anymore. Lord, revive your church. Lord, revive those that will preach the gospel. Lord, rid us of these gospel presentations that are blasphemous because they don't represent you. They don't 
preach the gospel, and yet they make converts by the hundreds and thousands. Lord, revive your church. May the life of God truly fill our souls through Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. Lord, bless these words for the honor and glory of Your Son and Your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.